0: Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Now, I discovered that we covered this chapter last year because I wove it into our teachings on the book of Revelation. But to maintain our continuity as we study through the book of Daniel, we're going to cover it again, and you probably don't remember most of it anyway. There's a statistic out there that says that by the time people leave the church parking lot, they've forgotten about 85% of what was said. So, I know you guys are not average, you're above average, because I have people all the time coming up and quoting from my previous messages. So I know you guys retain a lot more than the average churchgoer, but nonetheless, it never hurts to go over it again. We need to be constantly reminded of the truths of God's Word. So I'm going to read through 7 through 12. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. "'Suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. "'It was raised up on one side "'and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. "'And they said thus to it, "'Arise, devour much flesh. "'After this I looked and there was another like a leopard "'which had on its back four wings of a bird. "'The beast also had four heads "'and dominion was given to it. "'After this I saw in the night visions "'and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, "'exceedingly strong. "'It had huge iron teeth. "'It was devouring, breaking in pieces.' and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot of imagery here, but we thank you that you've made it easy for us to understand because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So we thank you for that. We ask you to feed us, lead us, teach us, guide us through this passage In Jesus' name, amen. Now you might be wondering here, wait a minute, I thought Belshazzar was already dead. And so as I pointed out to you many times, not everything in the Bible is always chronological. And here, as we move into this chapter 7, we kind of have a backflash, if you will. Daniel now, as we move into these later chapters of the book, is beginning to share with us his visions, his dreams, his dreams. His angelic messages. And so he backs up, beginning with the story of a vision that he had in the first year of Belshazzar. 553 B.C., 14 years. We witnessed in chapter 5 the fall of Babylon. This event here that Daniel describes for us took place 14 years earlier. And so as I mentioned, Daniel 7 begins the portion of the book of Daniel dealing with prophetic dreams and visions as well as messages received from angels. So then he wrote down the dream. And that's a good idea. You know, if you ever have dreams that you think might be from the Lord, it wasn't late night indigestion, could have been really a message from the Lord, write it down. Especially if you have a sense that the dream might be from God. So he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. And so the scriptures reveal to us all that God wants us to know. You've heard that expression, that information is given out on a need-to-know basis. So God's given us revelation within his holy scriptures of the things that he wants us to know that we need to know, but there's much more that we won't find out about until we see him face-to-face. So Daniel writes down the main facts implying that there could have been a lot more that we don't have in the recorded scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly. And the old mirrors, if you've ever seen an antique mirror, they have a blackish tinge to them. Have you ever seen one of those? They're not like the modern mirrors that are very bright, very crisp. They were made differently out of different materials. And so, now we see in a mirror dimly, we see the things that God wants us to see, but He says, then, face to face, for now I know in part, even though we need to be committed, dedicated to studying God's Word from now until we meet Him face to face, we will never know or understand everything that can be known or understood till we see Him face to face. Now I know in part, But then I shall know, just as I also am known. Wow. So when we are transformed, when we receive our immortal, glorified, eternal, imperishable, incorruptible bodies, and our perfected minds, brains, we're going to receive a massive download of information from God. So here Daniel says, He wrote down the dream telling the main facts. There's a lot more to be known, but for now we have what God wants us to have. Verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Notice all of a sudden here in verse 2, he switches from the third person to the first person. In the first six chapters, Daniel always writes in the first person, but now in the last six chapters of the book, He writes in the first person, in my vision by night. And behold, the four winds of heaven. What would the four winds of heaven be? Simply north, south, east, and west. And they were stirring up the great sea. That's probably a reference from Daniel's perspective to the Mediterranean Sea. But there's more to this idea than just a body of water. We'll see in just a moment. And four beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Four great beasts. These represent the rulers of the four great world empires that were previously described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 of the giant image. This is another representation of those four great world empires of history. And so it's really amazing that here in Daniel chapter 7, in the course of Daniel's visions and dreams, he actually unveils for us the entire course of human history right up until the establishment of the millennial kingdom of Christ in one chapter. A download from the Holy Spirit, if you will. Four great beasts came up from the sea. Now in Revelation 13:1, the beast, or Antichrist, comes up out of the sea, and we understand that to mean the sea Of humanity. Have you ever heard that term? The sea of humanity. And so that's what's represented here these four great beasts, four great world empires rising up out of the sea of humanity. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. The lion, as you know, is considered to be the king of beasts. The eagle, being the king of birds, if you will, they're both symbols of strength and speed respectively, strength for the lion, speed for the eagle. And these images are used of Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, the first and greatest world empire, the Babylonian empire. Jeremiah 4, 7, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste. Without inhabitant, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, Judah, Israel, the, the ravaging by the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah 4:13 Behold, he shall come up like clouds, and his chariots like a whirlwind; his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. And so, the first empire here, represented by the lion with eagle's wings, is the empire of Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And remember that Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated. He was sent out to roam through the fields like a wild beast on hands and knees on all fours, naked, eating grass because he refused to bow his knee to the one true living God. So his wings were plucked off. And that's recorded for us in chapter 4, the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. And then made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And so this describes his restoration upon his repentance and submission to the Most High. Remember, after seven years, the same time figure as the tribulation, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, like the prodigal son in the New Testament, comes to his senses. He regains his sanity. And he gives all glory to God, the one true God, the God of the Bible. All right, so here we now, verse 5, we have the second beast. Interesting that the terminology for uh, great world leaders, tyrants, dictators, kings, and so forth, is beast. Suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, The bear is a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire, known for its strength and fierceness in battle. Isaiah 13, 17, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, against the Babylonians, who will not regard silver, and as for gold they will not delight in it. They're not in it for the money. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. Ruthless, murderous were the Medes who aligned with the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. This beast, like a bear, raised up on one side and that indicates the superiority um, of the Persians over the Medes in the empire and had three ribs in its mouth and that could represent, there were three major conquests for this group The first was Lydia, 546. The second was Babylon. Remember when Belshazzar was overthrown and killed? We read about that a couple weeks ago. Babylon in 539. And then Egypt was their other great conquest in 525 B.C. Three ribs in its mouth. Snacking on these surrounding nations. Verse 6. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The leopard, as you probably know, is an animal noted for its swiftness, Habakkuk 1.8, its cunning and agility, Jeremiah 5.6, Hosea 13.7. The leopard represents the third great historical empire, the Greek empire under Alexander the Great which had on its back four wings of a bird. Four symbolizes universality. Wings are synonymous with speed. And the Greeks, under the leadership of Alexander the Great, rapidly conquered the known world. And this had not happened yet, of course, when Daniel wrote this, when he had this vision. The beast also had four heads. And after Alexander's death, if you recall... The empire was divided into four parts between his four generals. Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Macedonia. The beast had four heads, so the empire was divided into four sections. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So Daniel can't even compare this beast to any known species. Notice that he doesn't give a known animal designation because it's a whole other animal, different than any other. And this represents... Parts 1 and Part 2 of the Roman Empire. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. The Roman legions literally crushed their enemies underfoot. If you've ever seen that movie Gladiator, there's a depiction early on in a battle there where they are just brutal, just crushing the Goths, the German hordes that were coming against them. But the ten horns now will be explained in chapter 24 because, as I mentioned, this fourth and final great world empire had two parts. The first part we know disappeared quite a long time ago, the original version of the Roman Empire. And as I've also mentioned before, it was Adolf Hitler's dream, his vision, his goal, that the Third Reich would be the reestablishing of that Roman Empire And there would be a thousand-year rule and reign under the Third Reich. Isn't that interesting? Kind of sounds like the millennium, doesn't it? A demonic, satanic, false version of millennium. But God said, no, you're not going to do that. We defeated the Nazis by the grace of God. But it gives you an idea of that spirit that's at work down through the centuries through these various tyrants, dictators, world conquerors, and so forth. But the ten horns actually represent the uh, revived Roman Empire of the last days. And whether that will be literally seated in Rome remains to be seen. But it's just like the whole world system of the last days. The uh, governmental system, the monetary system, the religious system. In the book of Revelation it's referred to as Babylon. But there's also the correlation with that Roman Empire, and we will be watching from heaven to see how it unfolds. Verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. And so someone at first who seems to be insignificant, a minor player, if you will, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so again, we have shifted here very subtly from the four great world empires to the final empire, if you will, the last empire, which will be very brief under the Antichrist. So it would appear, from what Daniel writes here, that the Antichrist will start out as a fairly insignificant political figure, perhaps, who will come to power by deposing three of the ten world rulers. We've talked before. The game plan is already in place. Agenda, uh, what was the first agenda? Agenda 21, now it's Agenda 2030. Uh, They are proposing that the world, we know that nationalism is going by the wayside, right? Open borders. The video I showed you last week with Laura Logan where she's talking about the game plan that's already in place by the the powers that be to remove the United States as an independent nation, merge us with Canada and Mexico to create this North American division. The game plan is ten world divisions, no longer independent individual countries, but ten quadrants or whatever you want to call them, but the world will be divided into ten sections with ten rulers, prime ministers, premiers, governors, whatever you want to call them, and it would appear that the Antichrist is going to displace three of them will be a result of his rising to power by deposing three of the ten world rulers of the last days by military coup, by assassinations, blackmail. There are numerous ways that that could take place. In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. In the Bible, eyes speak of intelligence. Most likely, not surprising. Oh, and by the way, as we talk about this idea that he will start out as a fairly insignificant politician, we've seen two significant things happen over the course of, for many of us over the course of our lifetime. And that was the first one was Bill Clinton rose up out of obscurity. He was the governor of Arkansas. Nobody really knew who he was. All of a sudden, he is the Democratic nominee for president, and then he's elected twice. Previous presidents had extensive backgrounds in politics, politics, extensive exposure. You think about a Ronald Reagan, formerly an actor, known all over the world. Before that, Richard Nixon spent a lifetime in politics. I skipped over Jimmy Carter because he should be skipped over. Uh, But he was a famous peanut farmer. Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, you go back, military heroes. All of a sudden, some guy from Arkansas that nobody knew, and all of a sudden, he's the hero of the moment. He's elected. And the same thing happened with Barack Obama. Barack Obama served one half of a term as a U.S. senator. Do you know that? Before he was elected. And all of a sudden, he is again a world icon, a god, if you will. And so that gives you a little perspective on how this might happen. All of a sudden, he will rise up seemingly out of nowhere. But most likely, he will have a genius IQ. I just read where they rated Adolf Hitler's IQ at 140. That's genius level. And as someone pointed out, there's a fine line between genius and madness. Obviously, Adolf crossed over. So he he had eyes like the eyes of a man. Genius IQ, a mouth speaking pompous words. And this is compatible with the description of him in Revelation 13, 5. He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And so, now some people believe that this means he will not rise to power until the second half of the tribulation. I don't agree with that. I believe he will begin his rise to power at the beginning. But it will gradually become more and more powerful until the halfway point, And that's when he declares himself to be God. That's the distinction here. In the beginning, he's a man of peace, Right? He's the Antichrist, the false Jesus. He, he, he creates a peace treaty between Israel and her enemies, and the whole world says peace and safety. But then halfway through, he declares himself to be God. So the last three and a half years of the tribulation period during which the Antichrist's power is, becomes unrestrained, unrestrained. Verse nine. I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Now, there's a throne here indicating judgment. There are two judgments in Revelation chapter 20. And notice it says thrones, and we'll, we'll touch on that here in just a moment. Not just God's throne, but multiple thrones. The first judgment is at the end of the tribulation. After the seven-year tribulation leading into the millennial kingdom of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. The second judgment, called the great white throne judgment, is at the end of the millennium, after that 1000 final rebellion when God releases Satan from the abuso, the abyss, the bottomless pit for a short time that he might test and tempt the people alive on the planet because they will have lived under this planet, under the reign of Christ without opportunity to be fully tested. So Satan will be released to test them, and unbelievably a large number of people will follow after him in rebellion against God. But he will be put down as we know. Revelation 20, verse 4. This is the first throne judgment. Then I saw thrones, just like here in Daniel 7. And they sat on them and judgment was given to them. This is us, the saints, the believers. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, the tribulation martyrs. There will be people saved during the tribulation, but it will cost them their lives, their physical lives. And because of the word of God, notice the two things, the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, the things that we must stand for here and now. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So here God is referred to as the Ancient of Days, a reference to God the Father confirmed by the submission in verses 13 and 14 of the phrase the One, big O, like the Son of Man, again referring to Jesus, And so the Ancient of Days is the Father, the Son of Man, is Jesus. And his role in judgment in verse 22. We'll get to that next week. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And again, we know that we we serve one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we find descriptions of the two, of Jesus and the Father, very similar in the Scriptures. The glorified Christ from Revelation chapter 1. The description sounds just like this. You know the expression like father like son? Jesus is the human physical manifestation of the Father. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame and this symbolizes God's divine judgment. Its wheels are burning fire. This refers to the chariot in which God rides to battle to exercise his sovereignty and to appear as judge. We study this. Several years ago in our midweek service in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1:15 through 21, Ezekiel 10:1 through 22, Ezekiel has this vision of God traveling through the universe in this fiery chariot. We see that same description here with Daniel. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, a thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And of course those numbers represent just an unnameable amount. Thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. Too many to really count even. Notice something here. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. Throughout the scriptures, folks, God is depicted as a God of fire. If you know Him, it's good. If you don't, it's very bad. The same fire that burns in our hearts, that purifies us. John the Baptist told people, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The fire of God for the believer is a wonderful thing, it warms our hearts, it purifies our hearts and minds. But for the non-believer, the fire of God represents torment and judgment. 2 Peter 3:7, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Reserved for fire. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This happens at the end of the millennium. So again, it's compacted here. The day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, the rapture of the church followed by the seven-year tribulation, followed by the millennial reign of Christ. And then we're told, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That happens after the millennium. But it all involves fire, does it not? Remember, God promised Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. But he didn't promise not to destroy it with fire. Okay? Flood kind of leaves a soppy mess afterwards. Fire just burns everything down into ashes. And then he's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth, which will be even better. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000. This would be the heavenly host, the angels, and the saints as well. Revelation 5, 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was ten thousands, ten 10,000, and thousands of thousands. 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. Notice the angels, the living creatures, the cherubim, and the elders representing the church. The court was seated and the books were opened. Interestingly, as Daniel is the one receiving this vision, his name means God has judged or God is my judge. And here Daniel saw God as the world's judge. Okay, that was the first throne judgment we talked about. Now here in beginning in Revelation 20 verse 11, The great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. You see, the final judgment is for the wicked. And that will take place after the millennium because there will be more people who will be condemned because they follow Satan in his final rebellion against God. I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written which were written in the books. So amazingly Daniel's giving us this prophetic revelation that covers really the entire course of human history right up until we move into eternity. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So Daniel is amazed here. The pompous words which the horn was speaking. He's amazed by the pride and the arrogance and the audacity of this beast who is in fact the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 Let no one deceive you by any means. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, I think, recently anyway, that let no one deceive you. It's a choice. You can choose not to be deceived or you can choose to be deceived. Let no one deceive you. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The day of the Lord, the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the millennium, that's all part of the day of the Lord. Man has had his day on this planet and we've not done very well with it. So the day is coming very soon, the day of the Lord, when God's going to take control completely. He's already in control, but He has given man a certain amount of freedom and latitude to mess things up. He's given Satan a certain degree of latitude and freedom to work his mischief in this world. But when the day of the Lord comes, all that will come to an end. No more hanky-panky. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, like Judas, personally indwelt by Satan, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to be moved beyond just being the one world ruler to declaring himself to be God. And that's what Daniel is witnessing. He's blown away by the pompous words that the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Good news, he gets it in the end. Revelation 19:20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, the leader of the one world religion, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice... The false prophet will play a key role in deceiving people into worshiping the Antichrist as God and receiving his mark. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And Daniel witnessed all of this in his vision, amazingly. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts... They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The NIV reads like this. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Greek empires are being referred to as the rest of the beasts. The final empire of the Antichrist will be the last man-made empire ever to exist on planet Earth. The last one. And so for these others, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So each empire lasted only as long as God allowed it. And we know that all earthly empires have ultimately ended. They've come crashing down. The same thing will be true for the empire of the Antichrist in the last days, which we are right on the threshold even now. Now in the second half of this chapter Daniel receives the interpretation of his vision which we've all kind of already kind of interpreted but it'll be very interesting to read the interpretation as received by Daniel from God and we will see definitely at the end of this chapter the establishing of Christ's millennial kingdom here on earth. Let's stand. Before we uh, go to the Lord in prayer, I'd like to give an opportunity for anyone who has a prayer request, if you would raise your hand now, please. Quite a few. And the Lord sees those hands. Let's bow our our heads and our hearts before the Lord. Father God, first of all, we do thank you for your word, for giving us all this information in advance so that we would not be shocked or surprised or worried or fearful. We know exactly what's going to happen and we know how it all turns out in the end. That we're on the winning side because you have drawn us into your eternal kingdom by your Holy Spirit. Father, I want to lift up the requests that are represented by the hands raised this morning. Lord, you know each heart. You know what's on everyone's minds here this morning. Some are thinking about health issues right now, either for themselves or a friend or family member, a loved one. Father God, you are the great physician Lord, we acknowledge that we live in bodies that are still in a corrupt state. We live in a corrupted world because of sin, and so we do get sick. We do get illnesses and diseases, and these bodies are not the eternal bodies that we will one day receive. But Lord, we call out to you now for healing, for help. Lord, whether it would be for arthritis, whether it would be for asthma, COPD, various afflictions of the various... Uh, parts of the body, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys, and so forth. Lord, you know us inside and out better than we know ourselves. And God, we do pray, we do ask humbly for healing, for relief, Lord, from pain, from affliction, from sickness, illnesses, diseases, infections, anything, Lord, that would hinder us first and foremost in our ability to serve you. But Lord, as we do live in the material world, we have to We have to work until a certain point in time when people retire, and then there's still work to be done around our houses and so forth. And we need the strength for that, Father. We ask for healing in Jesus' name that you would pour out your healing upon your people. Relief from pain, relief from suffering, Lord. But Lord, we know that no matter what, you will be with us. That through our weaknesses, your strength is made known. So we humbly submit these requests to you for healing, And also not for just physical healing, but for mental and emotional issues. Lord, for depression, for anxiety, worry, doubt, fear, stress. Even those uh, sinful emotions and feelings that we have like anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy. Lord, we need your help with those things. They can be very, very damaging to us. We ask your forgiveness if we're harboring any of those blood of Christ that we might not harbor those uh, fleshly heart attitudes but Lord for those things that um, would seem to be beyond our control we know that you're in control and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to bring relief and release for those struggling Lord as you said that you came to heal the brokenhearted we pray that you'd pour out your spirit upon those that are suffering mentally emotionally spiritually and physically Lord, we pray for um, relationships that have been broken or damaged. We know the enemy comes but to steal, to kill, and destroy. But you've come that we might have life and life more abundantly. Lord, abundant life has to do not only with what's happening inside of our own hearts and minds, but it has to do with how we interact and relate with others. We are not an island unto ourselves, Lord. We have connections with those around us, with friends, family, co-workers, and so forth. And we desire healthy, strong relationships, Lord. We ask you to heal those broken and damaged relationships. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to be willing to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, Lord, even if we were not the offending party, that we might set the example. But we do pray for restoration, Lord, for friendships, family relationships, for marriages, for uh, parent-child relationships, Lord. The many relationships that we have in our lives that can become damaged and broken we lift them up to you and we pray for healing in jesus name and finally lord we pray for financial provision lord as we see everything going crazy in our world today and prices going up and up and up we are so thankful that you are our provider and we know that you'll continue to provide for us give us faith give us hope give us strength and endurance to make it through these difficult times help us to keep our eyes on you We pray that you would provide for us, that you'd give us wisdom and guidance with the the best possible management of our resources, Lord. But where even that falls short, we ask you to come in like a flood and provide for your people. And we will be quick to give you all the glory and the honor. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.